Let us pray. Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken. And whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. How is this night different from all other nights? The very beginning of a Jewish Passover. The youngest person at the table is expected to ask this question. Why is this night different from all the others? Even if that youngest person is 25 years old and has heard the answers 25 times over, they still ask the question. Because the question is a pretext. It's a reason to tell the story. And the Passover meal itself is a pretext. The story expressed in ways more primitive even than words. Once someone asks that first question, then everyone is set to remember the story of how God saved the Hebrew people, how they ate a hasty meal as they prepared to leave Egypt, as they gathered around the table to eat half-baked bread and dip bitter herbs into water that was as salty as tears. As they do all these things, they do more than recall the nation of Israel. They remember it. See, remembering is a physical act, as much as it is a mental one. Remembering is not only the opposite of forgetting, but it is also the opposite of dismembering. Throughout the centuries, the nation of Israel had been dismembered, separated and scattered by immigration and death and unfaithfulness. But every Passover remembers the people puts them back together, grafts them through time into the life of those first refugees and all who came after them. Passover night is different from all others because of what, because of who it remembers. On the night before he gave himself up for us, a night that either coincided with or came just before the Passover, Jesus called his disciples together for a meal, and he said, Do this in remembrance of me. It was on this night, this holy Thursday, that Jesus announced that God's people would no longer be remembered by the saving act of the Exodus. From that night forward, the incarnate God would use his own body and blood to call together a people and set them free. Over the centuries, Christians have developed a word for this meal and for other physical acts that take time and substance and people and bind them all together into the life of God. We call these things sacraments. The word means mystery, which seems appropriate because although we trust and receive these things that God gives us, we never quite figure them out, do we? We are never even quite sure how many there are. Our church says there are two, others say seven. Some say it's so far beyond all understanding that we shouldn't use labels at all, and so they end up with no sacraments at all. And some have made up their own. Seminary professor was once down in Georgia learning about that peculiar strain of Christians who called themselves foot-washing Baptists. 
And they got to arguing, the church and the professor, about the things that Baptists argue about. Asking him questions like, well, why does your church baptize babies? And he gave the textbook answers. We believe baptism replaces the Hebrew sign of circumcision. God offered that to babies, so we offer baptism to babies. We offer baptism to the mentally challenged, even when they can't say exactly what they believe. And so we offer it to babies as well. And most of all, we think that baptism is a sacrament. We think it is a mystery. Precisely because it is something that God does, not something that we do. We think that baptism connects us to God. And we are pretty sure that God wants that connection with all people, even babies. The professor stopped, crossed his arms, waited for those backwoods Georgians to admit defeat. But instead, what I'm just said, so, like, foot washing is a sacrament. Prof sighed, no, we're not talking about foot washing. We're talking about baptism. But if baptism is a sacrament, why isn't foot washing? It just isn't. No denomination, no tradition in the history of the church has ever called foot washing a sacrament. Well, why not? What makes something a sacrament, the yokel replied. Well... Baptism and communion are sacraments for three reasons. They use visible signs like water and bread and wine. Second, Jesus did these things and commanded us and the disciples to do them as well. You mean like in the Gospel of John, said the church. When Jesus said, I have washed your feet, you too must wash each other's feet. To which the seminary professor said, right, wait. Perhaps one day, a historian will be able to explain to us when and why foot washing fell out of fashion with the church. Maybe it's because the book of Acts is full of stories of baptisms and worship meals, but none of washing feet. Maybe foot washing died out in the culture before it died out in the church. Eating and bathing are still regular parts of our lives, and so communion and baptism don't feel so foreign. They are a meal and a bath that are different from all other meals and baths, but they are still familiar. On the other hand, now that we have socks and shoes and paved roads and cars, most of us don't think about how our feet affect other people too often. In Jesus' day, of course, it was different. Folks walked everywhere, on roads that were dusty at best and muddy at worst. By the end of a long day, you could expect your feet would be filthy. And not only that, but when you sat down to eat the evening meal, you could expect to be in close proximity to someone else's feet. Jesus and his disciples did not eat the Last Supper reclining in chairs or sitting in chairs with a large table hiding their feet down below them. No, they ate Roman style, reclining at the table. No chairs needed. Whether they reclined toward the table or away from it or alongside it, my point is they were on eye level with everybody else's feet. You begin to understand why foot washing was such a common mealtime practice, as common as hand washing is today probably understand why the job of washing people's feet 
was reserved for the servant or the member of the household who had the very lowest rank. As footwear and furniture have changed, it makes sense that our customs have changed, but I can't help noticing that we also have changed. Our expectations are very different from most of those disciples. I've done foot washing services in nearly every church I've ever attended, and it always feels radical. In Jesus' case, foot washing was radical too. It was radical that the master, the Lord, and the teacher of all, the one with all the glory and the power, should also be so humble, so willing to wash his disciples' feet. But in my experience, most people these days don't actually find anything too radical in the idea of washing someone else's feet. I've never met a Christian who would say, at least not out loud, I'm too good to wash someone's feet. My experience of Christians and folk in general is that we want to be humble and modest and helpful. We don't mind doing God's dirty work if it genuinely will make someone else feel loved. If cleaning feet is called for, we'll clean feet. Just like we would make someone a meal, clean their house, do anything we could to help a person in a time of need. But something changes when the conversation moves from cleaning to being cleaned. Every foot washing service I've ever been to, there were far more people willing to do the washing than to take their shoes off and be washed. Maybe this is a moral achievement. Maybe it's good that we don't want anyone to be our servant. Peter certainly thought so. Apparently all the other disciples were content to let Jesus humiliate himself, but Jesus left up and said, absolutely not. See how much I love you, Jesus. See how much I respect you. I would never let you do this. I get it, Jesus. Let me take care of my own mess. I've got this. Please don't go to any trouble on my account. Peter is different from all the others. Determined not to offend or be a bother to the most important man in the world, Peter is going to take care of his own mess and not owe anybody anything. He won't take advantage of anyone. Peter is different from all the others. And he's exactly like us. We are determined not to live our life at the expense of anyone else. The prayer of self-respect goes something like, Lord, don't let me be a burden to my family or my neighbors. And we will tell ourselves any sort of story to believe that that prayer has been answered. We'll tell ourselves that land has not been scarred, that air has not been poisoned by the things that we consume. We are not a burden on anyone. We'll tell ourselves that we've done right by our kids and that we've compensated for whatever psychological flaws we've done to them. We'll insist that our own flaws aren't really hurting anybody. Sure, no one's perfect, but we aren't really doing any damage. And then when we can't believe that lie anymore, we insist that we're going to make it up to whoever it is that we've managed 
to damage. We want to get back. We want to live a good life. And a good life is one that ends with all its relationships accounted in the black. We want to end our lives by saying we gave more than we got. We're like Peter. And if we are like Peter, then that means Jesus is speaking to us too. When he says, you do not understand, but you will. You will understand that giving a foot scrub is nothing compared to what I'm about to do. You do not understand, but you will. You will understand that the red in your ledger is not a debt, it is a gift. It is love. And it is why you are here. You cannot make good. You cannot make meaning. You cannot justify your life. Because I've done that for you already. You do not understand, but you will. You will understand that all I've ever really wanted from you is that you might know you are loved and that you would let that love change you, clean you. You do not understand, but you will. One day, you will comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and depth and height of God's love. And when you finally understand how deeply you are loved, you will remember the infinite moments when you were close to understanding. And you will remember that love was always there, just waiting to be understood. And that love is here on this night unlike any other. And we are here to receive the mystery of love by whatever means God will give it. We are here to remember his body and blood so that we become members of his body redeemed by his blood. We do not understand how anyone could be so loved. We do not understand all the ways that love makes all the difference. But we will. 